welcome to the Halal Metropolis podcast, where we interview artists and other creatives from the Muslim communities of Southeast Michigan to explore how their work contributes to the visibility and vitality of the Detroit metropolitan region. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Joining us today is Elise Alusi whose work has appeared in several journals and anthologies, including most recently in the Detroit Free Press and R&R Press. She's a recipient of fellowships to the Fine Arts Work Center, Soul Mountain, and Martha's Vineyard Institute of Creative Writing, as well as a 2019 Kresge Literary Arts Fellowship and a 2015 Night Arts Challenge Detroit Award. Her poetry is forthcoming in a new anthology of Arab love poems. We Call to the Eye and the Night, to be published by Persia House Books in fall 2022, edited by Hala Alian and Zaina Hashem Beck. Elise is also director of school and community partnerships at the Inside Out Literary Arts Organization in Detroit. She's a former artist in residence with several Detroit high schools and the former program director there as well. I'm excited to speak today with Elise about her work as a poet and her work with Inside Out, which uses poetry and other forms of creative writing to empower youth in Detroit. Thank you so much for having me, Sally. It's an honor to be here. Good. It's so good to see you. Great to see you. I was eager to speak with you because I find your work so inspirational. I think when scholars discuss the poetry of Arab Americans, they are frequently stuck on the imagined hyphen that exists between the two terms. Your father is from Baghdad, your mom is from the United States, and I know you've written about both places quite a bit in your work, and I want to talk to you about both in just a moment. But I love the way your work is concerned with so many other issues as well. There's so many metaphorical hyphens here, or perhaps I should say continuums, the relationships between mothers and daughters, between day and night, between life and death, and between past and present. So perhaps it's on this, this last note that we should start. The poem I'm thinking about here is the one you shared with me recently called Deadline. Please tell me how you came up with the framing for this poem. Sure, absolutely. Thank you so much, Sally, for that beautiful introduction. I, I feel like you really captured in a way that I don't think I've heard before those kind of areas of opposition that I think exist in my poems. The poem Deadline was actually part of a really amazing project called the Afro-Dixie Remix Project, which was started by a fantastic visual artist named John Sims. It's taken place all over the country, and my poem was written for an event that took place in Detroit at the Detroit Institute of Arts. And it's really was pretty profound for me that the task that John gave us um, and there were a number of amazing Detroit uh, writers who participated as well, was to reflect on one particular song that has a very heavy history in our country, and that song is Dixie. And so it's not a song I you know, obviously knew a lot about or grew up listening to or had a big frame of reference for. But I had recently discovered that on my mom's side of the family, which, as you mentioned, is from Detroit and goes back in Detroit for many, many generations, there was a relative of hers who was in Andersonville prison. So he was in the Civil War. And during that period of time, he kept a journal, a very detailed journal about his 
his experiences during the Civil War. So it was inspired by that kind of past that you mentioned earlier, but also about the present that we exist in, where Black lives are consistently up for grabs, whether it's by police or the prison system or other systems that are steeped in institutional racism and other forms of racism that have existed in this country since the beginning, since the founding of this country. And so it was really looking at that history of that particular song, how it came to be, who wrote it, which is often, I think, something that exists in music, but in other art forms as well, that kind of co-opting of things that belong to another culture, um, I think exists, and that history was interesting to me. But I also was very moved by one particular um, incident uh, incidents of white supremacy that took place at a church by Dylan Root. And so that plays into uh, the poem as well, to the people who welcomed this person into that circle um, and lost their lives at his hand. So um, so yeah, it's an exploration of really that history that exists here. And then also my, my own family connection to to the Civil War that I had, had recently become aware of. That's so interesting. I had I didn't even catch the reference to your own family in the poem. So she starts the poem by talking about Daniel Emmett, who is the guy who's credited with writing the poem. And so you give a little bit of history of him in the poem. And I, I went and looked him up myself because I didn't know. And uh, he was a minstrel performer. And in fact, he was like an innovator in the minstrel realm. You know, he kind of went in whole hog, whereas other people had just, you know, done like maybe one song as a comic relief or something like that. So yes, there's a question. Did he, you know, he gets credited with having written the song, but did it, did it actually come from the African-American community? There was cultural appropriation here. And clearly there was the, the blackface itself is appropriation. So I, I just found it really moving the way you tie that history of that song with what's happening in the present, right? With the with the way one group of people feels so much power over another group of people. And also with the idea that the act itself was not just a lone wolf, a confused person. It was more than that. It was white supremacy. I mean, you said it very clearly in, in the way you framed the poem. I just found that poem incredibly moving, and I encourage people to, to, to look it up. We'll have a link to all these poems um, with, the, with the podcast so that you can go and find it yourself. And I also think it's really interesting that you were able to respond to re requests like that. Um, I, I mean, I think as a non-poet, um, and probably a lot of people in the audience probably share my perspective on this, where do these poems come from, you know? And I, I think it's really interesting to think that someone can give you like a mission here, you know, write about this song, and then you can, you can go in that direction. That's amazing. I have to say, I, I've had a number of those requests. Like you said, I think poets are often asked to write um, on a specific theme or idea. And, you know, you kind of spend a lot of time thinking it through. And in this case, doing research and reflection. And then at the last kind of 11th hour, you're like, oh, it's coming together. Thank goodness. But you never know. And, and I know you mentioned in your introduction, my work at Inside Out. I will say that's something our students very often get asked to do as well. And I'm always so impressed by the work that they do. But we often have um, calls from the community, from arts organizations and 
other institutions to have our students reflect on a moment or an idea or a concept that will add to an event that they're planning. And, and I'm always so impressed by the work that our students do. So thank you for mentioning that as well. I mean, to me, this is like strange. I do a different kind of writing. <laughs> so it's, it's hard for me to imagine. Well, so, you know, another thing that really struck me when I was reading through some of the poems you shared and some that I have here around the house (laughs) on my bookshelves, you know, just to go back to that idea of the hyphen between the here and the there, Iraq and Detroit, Baghdad and Detroit, Iraq and the U.S. And the the thing that I, I really appreciate about your work is you don't write about, so many people write about, you know, like the homeland as though it's a memory, it's a nostalgia place, it's the place the parents come from, you know, it's some far off removed place. But that's not what you do at all. I mean, you do have poems like that. You write about your father and him coming here. There's the one poem about your father, Patterns of Departure. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about, uh, you know, your father didn't come here like so many immigrants do just to just to, you know, make a living, get ahead, provide a better future for his family. Um, there's a suggestion here that he came because he had to. He was perhaps fleeing something. You know, there was a long standing regime in, in Iraq, uh, the regime of Saddam Hussein, and so many people who have Iraqi origins and, and roots in Detroit as well came here because they had to flee Saddam Hussein. So it's not an unfamiliar tale. But your Iraq is not one that is peopled only by the victims of Saddam Hussein or by Iraqis. It's peopled by Americans. Um, it's peopled by expressions of American power. And even the Iraq that exists here in America in your poetry, the imagined Iraq, it's not just in the heads of people like you, the children of Iraqis or Iraqis themselves. That Iraq also exists in the heads of all the hundreds of thousands, now probably millions, of U.S. soldiers who have fought over there and now come home again. So they also kind of like possess an Iraq in their imaginations. When our government um, first launched Desert Storm all those years ago, back in 1990, um, I just remember one of the things that traumatized me about this, you know, apart from seeing the Baghdad through the scope of a bomber, you know, um, and I was just thinking, oh my goodness, how are my Iraqi friends seeing this, you know? But it was also that knowledge that from now on, it's not just going to be the historians and the anthropologists and the diplomats and the tourists who come home and tell us about Baghdad. The people who are going to be coming home and sharing America's impression of Baghdad now are going to be all these soldiers. And just thinking how heartbreaking that must be for people. And so, you know, here I am a, a full generation later, and I'm reading representations of this in your poetry. So I, to me, it's just so fascinating. Um, tell, tell me a little bit about what, what inspires you in terms of this, the, your ability to see things from so many different perspectives. Yeah, that period of time, the desert storm period, you know, I was a young college student, I was just beginning to write. Um, and, and also kind of like everyone at that age, figuring out my identity and who I was. And I will say that that was a, a painful and pivotal moment for me as a human being and as a writer as well, because as as I kind of mention and and comes up in the poem, capture the flag, 
Um, I grew up in a very isolated way in terms of my connection to other Arabs or Arab Americans um, in my direct community. I grew up in Detroit in, in an area that did not have a lot of Arabs. And, um, and, and for sure, we were the only Arab on our block. And so then to suddenly have the Gulf War and Operation Desert Storm happen and to think that now what people's understanding of this place, because obviously you're growing up as a young child and people are like, well, where's your dad from? And what's your story? And who are you? And, you know, what's your background? And literally as a child, nobody knew where Iraq was. They knew where Iran was because of of the history there. But most people who knew me and met me had no concept of the country of Iraq. And so for me, that moment of now people know where we are, now people know where my family comes from, but it's in this really horrendous way, was really challenging for me. And and like you said, I think it also has that reputation, Operation Desert Storm, as being the first televised war. And what does that mean um, to people here witnessing that um, who are from there? And so I have a lot of memories of sitting in my dad's uh, condo in front of the TV in a dark room with that playing in the background and um, and just feeling like almost, um, I don't know, shattered every time, you know, there would be that explosion that got described as being like fireworks um, and wondering what neighborhood is that in? Is it close to where our family lives? How many people have lost their lives today in this moment? And just that repetitive kind of pounding bombing that took place. Yeah, so so I, I have um, for sure spent a lot of time <laughs> emotionally and intellectually thinking about um, what has happened there and um, and because I'm Arab American, because my mother um, is from here and having that kind of dual upbringing in a way, for lack of a better word, also feeling a lot of shame um, uh, around that piece of my identity. And I think it continued to be a part of what I wrote about um, because it's never ended in a way. Um, what's happened there, the, the period of time after that with the economic sanctions was particularly um, difficult for everybody who lived there and for my, my dad's family. And that was sort of the one opportunity besides when I was a child um, that I had to go back to Iraq with my family, that I, that I had this incredible opportunity to go back with my dad and two of my sisters during that period of time. That, that I would say, really influenced a number of pieces that I've written, um, really thinking about, as I said to you earlier, so the Gulf War and Desert Storm got televised, but the sanctions got erased. Um, the sanctions got swept under the rug. They went on for 10 years, and an incredible number of people lost their lives. And so it's really striking to me 
um, during this period that we're in right now, this pandemic and the idea of loss of lives, the tremendous number of people who have lost their lives in Detroit alone, and thinking about what, how do people wrap their head around really big numbers and really big loss. And I, I really have concluded they don't. They can't. It's unfathomable um, to think about, you know, 500,000 plus people in this country have lost their lives due to COVID. Um, and and that was my experience during the sanctions as well, that people couldn't face that level of loss. And, you know, there's the um, famous Madeleine Albright quote, um, I think the price is worth it. And I, I just, uh, that is so devastating to me that that will never stop being devastating to me that um that any price um is is worth that kind of suffering and loss of life uh so yeah i i do think a lot about our role there and and what it's meant for the people there for sure well, so this comes through in a couple of the poems you shared with me really specifically. So maybe not in quite as dramatic a way because you're not, well, you're not really writing about death in the case of either poem, but you're writing like the one that you read for us, uh, what every driver must know is just so it's, it's humor filled. <laughs> it's not just sad and tragic, but it's, you know, how on earth can one group of people write a traffic code for another group of people on the other side of the world who have a different history of driving and drive in different ways and whose cities are laid out and structured in different ways. And, and as though people couldn't write their own driving codes. And <laughs> although I will say that, you know, sometimes driving around the city of Dearborn, I wish I could give the drivers in Dearborn <laughs> our driving code. <laughs> People seem to think that yes. stop signs are yield signs in Dearborn, but it's just like the nerve, the audacity, the the arrogance to, you know, and then you, there's so many, you know, elements of that in the poem with the SUVs. And but I guess it is a poem about death and loss too, because you talk about the road itself as a grave, um, um, you know, left over from the, from so many wars now, but there's another poem that, um, that was here in the collection, Lindy's Other Voice which also was a really powerful framing of that history of our imperial disaster that has been our time in Iraq. So can you tell me about Lindy's, Lindy's other voice? Yes, that was a poem that I wrote specifically about um, a period of time when uh, another very devastating period of time when um, uh, there was a, a scandal, for lack of a better word, involving um, U.S. soldiers in Iraq who had been torturing prisoners at the Abu Ghraib prison, which already had a very long and deadly and horrific history in the country of Iraq. And so that poem is written in her voice, um, and um, and it's a reflection of how somebody can fall into seeing other human beings um, in a way that allows them to torture and humiliate them without conscience. But it's also actually about how she became the fall guy for that incident and for that series of incidents that took place. Um, it was always very interesting to me that she became the name and the face for that scandal. So I tried to imagine... Um, how she might feel, and also how she might want some level of um, forgiveness, I guess, for lack of a better word, 
um, for her role during that time. Um, but yeah, and and in in whatever driver must know, um, I know you mentioned kind of that idea of humor, which in some ways that is something that I love about the Iraqi people is that their sense of day-to-day life and maintaining a sense of humor about really horrific and challenging times is something I very much felt that kind of um, get up and go and get through this. And um, and when you get home at night, you're going to have a chuckle about how incredibly ludicrous this whole system and situation is. And that was definitely something I experienced when I was there that, um, you know, people having to get by with really like that sense of creativity and determination because of the sanctions and because so many things were not allowed in to the country. And, and even my cousin who became sort of our tour guide when we were there and having to every morning be like, okay, is the, you know, really, really old Toyota going to start today? And, um, and what are we going to need to do? Uh, you know, what hoops are we going to need to jump through? And then imagining that, you know, that is the daily existence of, of their lives under, um, under that kind of situation. So, so it's gallows humor <laughs> and, yes. and, and, uh, and, and occupation humor and just the irony of it, you know, uh, just, you know, if you, if for every hour driven rest for five, <laughs> yeah. we, we don't do that here. <laughs> I mean, how are we going to expect yes. people to do that there? Yeah. And it's so people have time to think about all these little mundane things when they're trying to just, you know, get to their destination safely you know? Yes. Yes, um, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that, that Baltimore has any kind of connection to, you know, Baghdad or Iraq. And also this idea that like, this is the land where, you know, the first laws, the first codes of how you exist in a, in a community as a citizen, as a human being, that's where they were born. And so that you're going to now presume that you can rewrite that um, is, is really, was really startling to me. Uh, yes. And it makes us realize that the, their constitution was also drafted by Americans. Yeah. <laughs> the current one. <sighs> yes. We forget about these things as time goes by, we allow ourselves to forget. Well, you also write quite a bit about, um, you clearly find inspiration in your, like your family life, your domestic life. Mm-hmm. And you read for us a poem about your daughter, called, um, looking for it on my screen, imitation spring, which Mm -hmm. I thought was really beautiful. As you're saying, you know, you just talked about the connection between this COVID era we're going through and our inability to see loss and, and the period of the sanctions in Iraq. But this is also a poem where you're a personal past and the present moment we're living in kind of intersect. Can you tell me about that poem? Sure. As I mentioned in the poem, my daughter is 18. And the poem is really about thinking about what does it mean to have an 18-year-old, but also what does it mean to have an 18-year-old during this particular period of time. So in a way, it's it's about kind of the loss of the natural and beautiful loss that we all have to face as parents when our children get to that age. Um, but also thinking about her um, unique set of characteristics. She was born with this this very unusual thing, which is not having a sense of smell. 
Um, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about what does that mean? I think a lot of people um, might think the sense of smell is not as important and, and granted maybe, um, maybe if you had to choose which sense you would not want, um, it might be that one. But also thinking about this whole idea that I think exists for anybody who's having impairment of one sort or another, what does that elevate in you? What does that lift up in you? How does that make you the human being that you are? And so definitely thinking about that with her and about how her other senses in some ways um, are much more alive and um, connected and how also thinking about memory, because I think a lot of people, when they think about the sense of smell, and the associations with memory and that powerful connection, particularly for poets and writers, there's often that um, that sense in the connection to memory. And so thinking about how do you form memories um, absent that. And so, yeah, there's a lot going on in the poem. It was um, also, you know, just like now we're at the beginning of Ramadan. It was Ramadan at that time and she was fasting. I was not. <laughs> and so um, also thinking about sort of, you know, that skipping a generation in terms of how do you connect to your past. So I'm, I'm really proud of her. She's fasting now as well. And um, so, yeah, so thinking about that as well. And then also, like you said, just like this weird thing about COVID and how people often know they have COVID because they can no longer smell. So there are a lot of people out there who can relate to what it's like to lose your sense of smell. Fortunately, most of them get it back, but yes, um, yes. yeah, I mean, my father-in-law lost his sense of smell several years ago and he's not gotten it back. And I'm a little bit aware of, 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 of what it means, but I'm also aware that, that also, you know, he has a kind of awareness of the world that is absent that smell, but other things have filled in for it. You know, he makes yes. meaning in other ways. So I, Yes, I like the way you, you, you see that and you point that. So you have another one here um, called hiding, uh, which I mm -hmm. also think is really interesting. And it's, it's one of those ones where I'm not sure who is the mom. Like, I'm not sure if you're the mom or the daughter, you know what I mean? It's like one of those ones where you, as you get a little older in life, you can relate to both of the figures in the poem. So why don't you tell me about hiding if you don't mind? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely the mom in that poem. Um, if I'm anything, I'm the mom. And it, it's really about kind of identity, I would say, and also sort of negotiating mother-daughter relationships throughout life. Like all relationships, they have a pattern. Um, they have their moments of challenge and strife, and they have their moments of deep connection. And so the poem is really about sort of um, this mother reflecting back on like, oh my gosh, I remember this period when my daughter was playing in the sandbox and not really into dolls and was this other human being. And now I, I'm trying to catch a glimpse of who she is in this moment. Um, and she's sort of hiding from me. But in the end, the poem is also about the mother wanting to kind of step out of hiding. Um, I think there is a sense of that. And, and maybe it has to do with being a creative person. Maybe it has to do just with having my daughter when I was older. But that idea of life kind of being paused for a period of time when you're a mom and um, 
And most of what you're thinking about and doing, particularly during those school age years, is really focused on being a mother. Um, and that then you have this moment, and, and again, that kind of powerful moment that can be full of opportunity, but also sadness of like being able to step out again and be fully yourself. Because I think when your kids are young, uh, as a mother in particular, your identity, who people see you as, um, and, and, and I love being a mom and I definitely, you know, feel incredibly grateful to have experienced that and particularly to be the mom of a daughter, frankly, um, you know, like all things there, there is that give and take of like who you are and, um, so how much energy you have, yes. how much energy you have to spend in the world. Yeah. I know that I first met you when you were a college student, I think back in the yeah. day, and I was also a young adult yes. and neither of us had children right. and we were out and about in the world all the That's time. Right. And, uh, and you have a daughter now I, too, right? College. I have a daughter yes. too. Yeah. She's 25. Wow. So she's slightly older than yours, yeah. but yeah, but we, and we sort of lost touch with each other for a few years and the, That's you know, right. I think this really explains Absolutely. why. Absolutely. I mean, I also moved away and yes. came back, but, um, but I, but that, I mean, it is so true. And I think it might, e might be even more true. Like you're saying for, for women who are a little bit older when they have their children, mm -hmm. because it just, um, I'm not saying, I don't think it takes more out of you, but I think it's just, I don't know, it's some long awaited thing, <laughs> like, a, like a treat that you, and you really want to focus on it. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And yeah. And then it's a, it is a kind of a, it's a relief it's a relief when you're free of that responsibility or most of it, and you can go back out and look up and really focus on the world in a way you hadn't been able to before. So I, I definitely relate to that. Well, this sort of leads me to the work you do as a, as an instructor and as an organizer for, for inside out. So one of the things that encouraged me when I was looking at the organization, so first I want you to tell me about what it does, but, but just as a uh -huh. question here, like when I saw that your new role there is to sort of facilitate the relationship between the organization, and the schools, to me, uh -huh. I, I, you know, that I took that as such a good sign because I'm, I work in a university setting and we're always talking about doing engaged teaching and, you know, mm -hmm. uh, collaborating with community partners. And the thing that I keep saying as a faculty member is I can't go out and work with all these community organizations um, and not just drown myself. You know, I can't have mm -hmm. to do, do my traditional teaching in the classroom full time and all the other things I have to do. And then also work with these organizations because those relationships are so time consuming and they're, yes. they're, they're so mutual and, um, and they can't be taken for granted. You know, that's the core of the work is the relationship building. So seeing that, that inside out has someone focused just on that aspect of the work tells me that it's a really mature, well thought out organization. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about what Inside Out does? Absolutely. So Inside Out has been around uh, just over 25 years. Um, and we do creative writing programming in schools and after school. We started in the city of Detroit. Um, we were founded by a former Detroit public school teacher, Dr. Terry Blackhawk, a poet in her own right, who had writers from the city of Detroit, creative writers come into her classroom and really saw the transformative power of students engaging with living, breathing authors. Um, and I'll just say that actually as a young person, um, I had that experience. I was uh, older than the students we serve, but through access, 
um, in its kind of early arts programming. Myself and other writers in the community had opportunities to meet Naomi Shihab Nye and other writers and connect with each other. And that was super transformative for me. But our kids are really lucky because they have that experience when they're in second grade, third grade, fourth grade, all the way through high school. And so we we hire and train um, professional writers from the community, and they become writers and residents in classrooms. And then in after school settings, they mentor teens who really want to grow their skills as writers and performers and forge their path as, you know, in the creative writing sector themselves. So um, I feel really fortunate to do the work. I started there as a writer in residence after working in the nonprofit world for a number of years. And my daughter was young and I, I needed a change. And I had not heard of the organization prior to a friend of mine working there. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like this is the perfect marriage of the things I'm passionate about poetry and working with young people. Um, so I love like, I will never forget my years as a writer in the schools. I, I actually went back to the school that I graduated from, Cass Tech, and was the writer in residence there and just had a remarkable experience. And then as my daughter got older, um, I shifted into a full-time position at the organization. And as you mentioned, I love the current job that I have. Um, it's It's, again, kind of like the thing that I'm most passionate about, which is growing opportunities for people to connect with poetry. So whether that's connecting with the Detroit Zoo, who we're in the midst of a really beautiful partnership with where students are learning about um, conservation efforts and animal um, well-being through creative writing, or it's partnering with the Detroit Institute of Arts or most recently, we um, established a new partnership with Dearborn Schools, which again was super amazing for me to take the program that started in Detroit and be able to serve. Um, we're, right now, we're serving Salina Elementary School. And um, so it's, it's... Tell people about Salina. It's a very, it's a very unique school. Yes, Salina is in Dearborn, and it's actually tucked behind where Access first started, if I'm not mistaken, the, where I used to go um, when I was part of the arts programming um, was right in that same neighborhood, and it's predominantly a Yemeni community, and, um, and I would say the school probably serves 100%. Arab students. Almost, almost. It's like there are a few African-American families who live in the neighborhood or or, or um, West African families that live there who want to be oh. near the mosque. But oh, it's fantastic. it's a it's an overwhelmingly immigrant, um, mostly, you know, like 98 percent Arab school yeah. in the shadow of the Ford Rouge factory mm -hmm. as well. So it's mm -hmm. a, it's very isolated from the rest of the city. It's a very unique it's a very unique community. Yes. And we've been welcomed with open arms from both the principal and the classroom teachers there, um, giving students an opportunity not to think about writing as a task or as something that you're going to be tested on, but to think about writing as a pleasurable act is something that has become less and less a reality of students' um, school day lives. And so that is definitely something we've seen across the board in all our schools. But I would say it, it's been particularly amazing to see, even during this period of the pandemic, students in Salina 
just connecting to language and to their own voices and stories has been really remarkable. I'm so excited about the Inside Out program and all the success you're having because I teach a lot of young Arab American students myself. I, I see how many of them are tongue-tied and they're, they're, they, they really just want that opportunity to speak and to come up with a language that is their own, to figure out which part of their story to share. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. You know, what, what part of your story do you share and in what ways do you share it? And with what audiences do you share it? And so, yeah, I think the work that we're doing is is really incredible. And, and I'm just, like I said, when I found the organization, felt like I had been given a great gift um, and, um, and just enjoy the work and enjoy the way that my position there has kind of transformed over time and um, really grateful. Um, like on this podcast, I'm doing the poets. <laughs> uh, I, and I think it's because all the poets that I've really had a close personal experience with are they're, they're teachers in one way or another. And very much like you described Naomi Nye, um, when you were young, mm -hmm. um, coming to access and doing workshops for the, for the young writers in the community. And I know Diana Abu Jabber came and did what we had other, we had novelists who came too. I, I don't, I shouldn't. Mona Simpson came. Yeah. Oh yeah. Mona Simpson. I don't think she came, but she, I remember her reading a story that I wrote and mailing it back to me. I, I think something happened and she couldn't come, but she actually read my work and gave me really wonderful feedback. And so, yeah, that, that was huge. I, I will never, like, I, I really credit that with so much of my growth as a writer and, and connection to my identity as well. Well, our audience for this is the general public, but it's obviously also includes our students and young people in the community. And I really like your story because I think you found a career for yourself as a poet. I think a lot of people don't understand how that works. You know, like either you're a professor of some sort, maybe you're an English teacher in high school, but this, you, you've like really found a really distinct career path for yourself where you get to really take advantage of all your passions. And there's no better place to be in the world, as far as I'm concerned, in a job where you, you don't know that you're working. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I think that that is a hundred percent true. That sense of, uh, I think I, I just wrote this recently to somebody that, that I get to spend my days with a lot of other poets talking about poetry, thinking about poetry, thinking about the ways we teach poetry, the ways we connect, um, people to the stories and ideas of their own community through listening to the voices of young people is just incredible. And that I get to do that on a regular basis. Um, I, I do feel incredibly fortunate and, and it was sort of a serendipitous um, moment when I, when I found the organization and, and I feel really grateful to still be um, plugging away. And like you said, like, I think one of the other things is to consider that, um, yes, there's the straightforward kind of academic path that people can be on in terms of writing. Um, and there's all kinds of other paths that you can that you can forge for yourself as an artist. And whether you do it full time and are able to find a career or whether it's something that you do because you love it and it's meaningful to you and it gives value to your life. I think, you know, there's many doors that you can open um, into that world for sure. 
Well, I can't thank you enough for talking to us today. This has been just a delight. Um, it's been good to see you. And uh, I, I really want to encourage people to pick up your poetry. And when the new book comes out, uh, we'll definitely make sure that we highlight it on the website. I can't wait to get my own copy. <laughs> uh, and, and um, you know, I, again, I just thank you. This has been really wonderful. Um, and I encourage people to read your work. Thank you. Thank you, Sally. This has been really a wonderful experience for me. I feel like the time just flew by. Thank you for making the space. Thank you for always making a space. And um, and yeah, definitely um, keep in touch for sure. This podcast is a production of the Halal Metropolis Project. Our team includes your hosts, Sally Howell, Osman Khan, and Razi Jaffrey with production support from Asma Baban and editing support from Shiraz Ahmed. Our theme music is composed by Lou Fuki and Divine Providence. The Halal Metropolis podcast has been made possible through the generous support of the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Doris Duke Foundation for Islamic Art, and the El Hibri Foundation, and is hosted by the Center for Arab American Studies at the University of Michigan-Dearborn, For more information, check us out at halalmetropolis.org.